Hello and welcome to Reality Tourist Podcast. In this podcast, I will interview people about their experiences of psychosis in order to end the taboo, educate people, and basically just help others feel less alone. Hello and welcome to this episode of Reality Tourists. This is a slightly special episode this time. It's the first time we're doing this, so bear with us. So firstly, this is going to be our first ever two-part episode because this record was so long and the editing has taken me forever and a day. But yes, two-parter. So yeah, that's, that's fun. The second fun thing is we're talking about a topic this time. So this time we're going to be talking all about employment and what it's like working while you've got psychosis, what barriers there are, whether or not you should disclose, all sorts of things. There's a lot covered in this episode. These episodes, should I say. Thirdly, this is the first time I've had more than one guest. So... Look forward to some slight chaos. Now, to be fair, actually, it wasn't as chaotic as it could have been. But, there we go. So, hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. So, I've got two guests today. Um, who wants to introduce themselves first? I don't mind who does it. So, uh, my name's Bronwyn. Um, I live in the sunny Midlands in, North, in um, Northampton, England. Um, and I am a senior advisor at a high street bank. And I live with psychosis. Okay, I have no idea what a senior advisor does, but I'm sure I'll ask you later. No, it's less complicated than it sounds. Uh, I'm Michelle Jameson. Uh, I live in Glasgow, Scotland, in case you couldn't place the accent. <laughs> and I am a, a researcher, a research psychologist by background. I actually research psychosis and employment, but I also live with psychosis. Um, and yeah that's me that's already sounds like it's gonna be fascinating uh, i suppose i should probably join in um i've not had a job for two years <laughs> i've not had a job since my last psychotic break and i massively struggle with employment i manage a few months here and there and then i don't know i don't know if it's stress induced or what but i just don't last very long <laughs> so um i suppose we'll start with the difficulties that you've um found in either gaining or maintaining employment with your mental health mental illness I should say actually why I'm saying mental health um, <laughs> so yeah um have you found it difficult or found it not difficult I think the thing in my experience is that I know that mine comes on as a result of stress um I'm not going to say it's you know the my work's fault because obviously it's down to my kind of makeup as a person, I suppose. And it's it's related to a lot of things that happened in childhood. But for me, workplace stress is always kind of the straw that breaks my back. And in terms of gaining employment, I think there are huge barriers to actually getting a job for, for people like us that have particularly psychosis. It is when you're when you're managing and you can manage it that's one thing but when you're trying to recover from an episode and you're also trying to find work because you don't just uh, I suppose for me I started about probably a couple of months into my recovery was when I started trying to find work again um, and the thing that led me there was the fact that I'm married I want to contribute to my marriage I want to contribute to the household and I didn't feel like I was and for me that's a really big thing that's a really big driver but trying to find work whilst still not a hundred percent 
was very difficult, particularly, I think the biggest barrier for me was when it came to interviews. It was hard enough for me to collect my thoughts and organize myself anyway. Um, with, you know, to be fair, I'm not a very organized person, even when I am managing well, but having particularly face to face interviews was terrifying and it always it felt like it always ended badly you know I had a lot of the time it wasn't necessarily the psychosis itself that caused that it was the fear of what happens if what happens if I'm talking to these people and the voices start coming in what happens if I start feeling really unsafe what happens if I start not making any sense I found that fear and that anxiety made it nearly impossible for me to perform in a face-to-face -face interview. I quite often say the only reason I got the job that I have now is because they did interviews over the phone because it was quick, it was easy and it was efficient for them. Because they did that, I was able to take the time to write down my answers in advance. And I had a lot less pressure knowing that even even if I started freaking out, I knew that they couldn't see it. They would only hear my voice. So I knew that there was almost that safety and that place for me to hide. And that was really important. If it hadn't have been for that, and if my current employer had been doing face-to-face -face interviews for, because um, I started off as a temp, if they'd been doing face-to-face -face interviews, I probably would have bombed. And that makes me really, really sad because a lot of it is firstly self-esteem and then access to actually getting into employment. Uh, I think those are two massive factors. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, personally, I'm not so bad at the interviews. I think I can mask for the length of an interview. <laughs> it's the bit afterwards I struggle with. <laughs> but it makes sense. And it's good that you have found a way that works with the writing it down and the yeah, that's that's. I think maybe places need more options for forms of types, types, forms, whatever I mean, of interview. <laughs> because, yeah, it's not, it doesn't all work, one, not one type works for everyone, does it? So that makes a lot of sense to me. I suppose I can just chip in, or just smiling awkwardly. Yeah, um, I just gather my thoughts as well. Yeah, I echo 100% a lot of what you said, uh, Bronwyn, um, just in my experiences of dealing with them psychosis and trying to gain employment so in my experience I have worked so like I obviously opened the introduction to saying I'm now a researcher but previously before uni um, I worked in care it was a lot of back back where we were shifts stuff like that um, when psychosis started to present itself um, and for a long time like it took a long time to get help for psychosis so for like maybe a year or two I really didn't know what was happening to me um I was also early early 20s struggling for money struggling to be bills everything else everybody was like oh you're distressed you're distressed and then you're pulling like back to back 12 hour shifts so the ways I coped with it then was I ended up working like night shift in the care homes because then you were on with less staff and obviously the residents were asleep so it was much in ways much, much easier, but I won't go off on a tangent, but the care home I worked in, there was all these stories flying about at night, as there always is, the place was haunted. So, of course, that didn't really help the psychosis. <laughs> it just ended up getting, it sort of um, 
interwoven into the massive web that always seems to weave itself around your life when you're dealing with everything. So yeah, then I went to uni, uh, I decided to try and get a PhD and interviewed for a PhD. So this was my first kind of nine to five job, if that makes sense. Uh, I interviewed for a PhD literally two weeks after getting out of the hospital. I just started new medication. I do not know how I did it. Uh, I when when I was going the recent breakdown just prior to that, I just kept thinking, if I did a PhD, it'll, it'll cure me. Oh, this this is this is the thing. I need more stress. <laughs> that would be fine. So I went along to the the interview at um, University of Glasgow, um, which is was a culture shock for so many reasons. Uh, not understanding the fact I'm working class from an area called Priestow in Glasgow. <laughs> not many people go to Glasgow Uni from there. So, uh, yeah, for the length of it, it was a face-to-face interview. It was 2017 with uh, my supervisors who were quite traditional academics. And I was just sitting there. All I could think about in interviews was, I need to act like a normal person. <laughs> and I hate that word normal, but I need to act as if my heat isn't in the clouds and that I don't hear three other people speaking to me because I have auditory phenomena with the voices. I need to look at these men in the eyes and see, but not in a not in a weirdly intense way, but in a normal person. <laughs> it was just, very, thinking back, it was just very surreal. But yeah, half an hour after the interview, I got the position. I don't know how, because there was swear words involved um, in the interviews. <laughs> to this day, um, and I should say, my supervisor laughs whenever I mention it. I go, was I the only person that, that applied? And he goes, ha, ha, ha. I take that as a yes, right? <laughs> Just because of everything. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but face-to-face interviews were hellish. And that included my time, like, navigating the benefits system. At the time, Glasgow was a... Uh, before they rolled out universal credit, Glasgow was a test area. And I was in one of the areas. The face-to-face interviews were ridiculous. Obviously, there's very little accommodation even though I did disclose them at the time. This was the condition, and that goes so far as to be in inpatient treatment and uh, the DWP just phoning the ward to see why you haven't turned up for an appointment. Like, sorry, Michelle's a bit too... She's dealing with some shit just now. She's not coming for that. She's not coming today. Um, yeah, yeah, thinking back, just surreal, but not to go off on a, a tangent. So still completing my PhD, by the way, but... Um, I was lucky enough to have a stipend for the first three years, um, which is, yeah, you, you can, they're both being a working class person, but still I thought I was rich. Um, I've now discovered that some unis people consider the stipends, like, not enough, but that's that's a whole other podcast episode. Um, so anyway, the money ran out and I had to uh, get a new job. This was last year. Um, during one of the last lockdowns so I was interviewing for full-time positions and one thing I did find really helpful with managing the voices in particular because they just they're very easily threatened and especially when I was in places that were out with my comfort zone like universities and things that I was interviewing for research jobs it was really hard to keep them under control and I do a lot of stats heavy stuff which involves talking through a lot of really dry theory and that was hard to do and the voices were talking about they're never helpful that's the thing see if anyone experiences or you know anyone that experiences helpful voices please let me know because that would be uh, that would be great actually um but no they just talk about 
stupid stuff. Just stupid stuff. Um, anyway, one thing that did help was a lot of my interviews were taking place over Zoom. And I found that, one, I could be in like a really comfortable place in my own uh, space. But two, there it seemed to be that level of separation that voices didn't seem so threatened. So they kind of calmed down a bit. Um, and I could actually get through the, inter- the interview. But um, saying that, when I interviewed for my job last year, they asked me a question like, um, what was my greatest achievement? And I started crying about my granda. And they thought he died, but he wasn't died. I was just crying because I was thinking about my granda. <laughs> so what I'm saying is nearly every in- interview I've had since the psychosis has been an absolute train wreck. But at least I'm employed. <laughs> oh, I'm feeling like the odd one out here. I can do interviews really damn well. <laughs> I just can't keep the freaking job. <laughs> Can you can you teach us? I, I totally get what you're saying about virtual interviews. Like my place now, you know, working from home, we're based all across the country. So yeah. virtual interviews is pretty much the standard now. I don't know what I'm gonna do if we ever go back to face to face. If we do, I will never get another job. <laughs> I will be stuck because it is just that that level of separation that you have. And I think as well, one thing that I do now is we do competency-based interviews so you get given the competencies beforehand so I kind of know roughly what they're going to ask about and I can prep some examples in advance I can have my notes Mm -hmm. up on the screen in front of me and I could I wouldn't ever feel comfortable doing that in a face-to-face interview I'd be looking through them I'd be rifling through them I'd be getting more and more flustered and when once I hit like peak anxiety that's when the voices would mm. really come in with a vengeance. Now, if I have them up in front of me, the interviewers yeah. don't know what I've got up in front of me. Yeah. I know there's less pressure. I know that they can't see what I've got. If I really wanted to, I could have whole worded answers, probably. I don't. I have like bullet points. But just knowing that I've mm. got that and I can look at it if I need to, takes away so much anxiety and so much yeah. stress and helps me get through it so mm-hmm. virtual yeah. all the yeah, way <laughs> I totally get what you're saying uh, with the notes like I found yeah virtually I even found some app where you can write all your notes and it kind of goes transparent over the zoom screen so it doesn't look like I'm looking away I look away quite a lot because one I, I just do two it doesn't help that psychosis is involved um, and it's just yeah it's just weird looking people in the eyes but um yeah the 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 point I'm trying to make was um yeah that level of separation not only calms voice down but stops them getting as bad so in person interviews I used to feel uh so the voices would get to a point where they would just be really derogatory about the other people in the room whether they felt threatened by them or they just were trying to distract me they'd usually be quite insulting to other people and I've been told I used to hide my reaction quite well but I would always leave with a massive sense of guilt like as if oh, that other person can tell that I have voices or it's me thinking bad things they must think I think really badly of them but it's the voices and not to get too meta with the voices are actually a piece of you and everything else but the le- it's something I still deal, deal with to this day the level of guilt I get around the way voices react to people is a lot which is just amplified when you're sitting in an interview with strangers trying to act like a, I, hate the, I hate the word normal but I can't think of any, anything else someone that seems hireable someone who isn't ill <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah. Um, I'm probably jumping the gun here but yeah when it comes to disclosure and stuff like that that's a, a whole other whole other ball game yeah 
Yeah, I'm, I'm bad with disclosure. I, oh, this is yeah. horrible to admit, but I tell people I've got anxiety because I feel like that's more palatable <laughs> and it can still explain most of my behaviours. Yeah. yeah. And I shouldn't do that. It's really terrible. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of adding to the stigma myself by refusing to admit it. But I need a job. Capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that's the thing, isn't it? When, if you tell someone... I've got anxiety a lot of the time mm-hmm. they will be quite sympathetic and because it's more talked about they'll probably mm-hmm. know how to help a bit more telling someone you've got psychosis yeah. I don't know some of the looks yeah. <laughs> that you get you you what now <laughs> and it just is mortifying it's yeah. so yeah yeah it can feel really humiliating when it's not when it doesn't go right I think it's just it's so linked in with them um, this personal experience and also a little bit about what I've been writing for work but so I'm the same I, tell, I used to say like oh I've got anxiety and yeah obviously anxiety and low mood to an extent can be present with psychosis and anxiety and depression although they can be severe and chronic are much more palatable just in general when you say psychosis I think still in this country and wider western world at large just have this really preconceived notion of what psychosis is and you, they tend to think, one, because it falls under a severe mental illness, people tend to think you're a fuck, basically, you are in a ward and you can't work kind of thing. And how people react to that is different. I've had people be shocked, but then cover up the shock and ask questions about it. The worst ones are probably the ones that go, well, why are you even working or <laughs> why are you here kind of thing? Um doesn't matter if you've been yeah. doing a good job up until then when that disclosure hits and then there's the third option which is people absolutely shit themselves <laughs> and they don't they they think you're suddenly like a, a massive risk um or you're not capable and that yeah. sort of infantile infantilize i can't i can't speak i've had so much coffee before i've worked on here <laughs> this <laughs> the sort of paternalization that comes with certain mental health labels so they all of a sudden think psychosis Michelle Bronwyn uh, can't work because you've suddenly lost capacity with saying one word is ridiculous ridiculous yeah it is I think that's a really good point about and I think one of the things for me because I have spoken about it at work with my team and beforehand I was really nervous because I like to say I I I'd been doing a pretty good job up until that point and I didn't want other people to see me differently because of it thankfully they all responded really well like they were all very you know they they wanted to know more like I think because I had a good relationship with all of them Mm -hmm. that kind of helped but I almost find it easier in that sense talking to strangers yeah because if they're strangers they've got no expectations they don't know me and their view of me I mean, to be honest, if their view of me is based purely on lived experience of a mental health condition, mm-hmm. that's that's on them. <laughs> that's that's solely on them. If if it's that their view of me changes, I think yeah. I, I think I'd feel quite a lot of grief about that if somebody's view of me changed. Yeah. It's almost like you lose when you disclose that, especially any sort of psychosis condition, it's like people stop seeing like a bit a bit of you and it's replaced with what they think the the condition is and like you know yourself like psychosis is psychosis but it's so massively different for 
person to person, even if you were to share like a, a common unusual belief system, it's so different. And it's, um, yeah, I feel that like I do still deal with a lot of fear and guilt around disclosure. For example, I only fully disclosed my condition to the, my university uh, this this year. I only fully told my supervisors a couple of months ago how much it was impacting. I mean, they could definitely tell. They said like. <laughs> <Suck up. laughs> but in comparison uh, my work which is for another university I decided to be really open from the get-go when I was offered the job and they were like oh we, we, you need referred to occupational health or whoever the people is um, which I think is just part of the course in Scotland to be honest um, I really should know better considering I research employment stuff but I can't think of the top of my head <laughs> but yeah, so I decided to be very open. There's not much like there's not much adjustment that is needed for my job really that I find. One, I mostly work from home. I can set my own hours. So in a way, like this job is stressful, but in another way, it's been a really good fit for managing the condition. Like there'd be no way I'd still be working if I was pulling twelve hour shifts in a care home. I'd be I'd I'd be unemployed just now. Um Yeah. So in a way the research role has uh really been beneficial for me but yeah dealing with the OT on the phone was something something else one it was just like a wee old woman called like Betty Coatbridge or something <laughs> so I was like yeah I've got um a psychosis condition she was like right schizophrenia is it because when you say psychosis people assume schizophrenia and I was like oh whatever all right <laughs> and she <laughs> It's easier than arguing, isn't it? That it's easier than arguing. Oh, I can't. I'm not going to get into the semantics and theory behind diagnostic labeling, will you? Like, I don't think that's your cup of tea. <laughs> and uh, she was she was asking me like adjustments, and I was like, well, one, I, it's hard to think of adjustments because sometimes I think, um, well, personally, I tend to deny when things are getting bad because if I deny it, then it's not actually happening. <laughs> But two, I find it really hard to think of adjustments when, like, I already work from home and stuff like that anyway. Um, anyway, so I, d- I told her this and she was like, oh, I just want to say, it. I've never I've n- never heard of anybody else with schizophrenia in this kind of job. Like, my auntie's Doug's niece, his husband's got schizophrenia and he just sits in his room all day and, like, I'm going to tell him about you, do you know that? And I was like, all right. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and that, that was the, the end of it. I'm sorry for all listeners who are now getting a crash course and a bit of Glaswegian slang there. Um, <laughs> feel free to cut that out. But suppose, to, to, to be fair to the occupational therapist, I think only like 10% of people with psychosis have a job. So I suppose statistically speaking, they wouldn't have encountered No, um, the latest statistics, and this is in the PhD, so I should remember, it's something like, Eight percent, or less than eight percent, is even less than ten percent. Yeah, um, I had, and the census will probably give us a better overview. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I just, I just find it funny the range of different reactions, um, you get when dealing with employment. Um, yeah, but yeah, t- team wise, they've been fantastic. To be fair, um, I think it got mentioned once, and that was. That's good. That was it. I'm sure they all went and had a Google, <laughs> Google rabbit hole. <laughs> well, it's funny when I told my team I did a like an actual sort of presentation on it because um, we have daily daily meetings and stuff. And one lady who um, shall remain nameless but is 
lovely she's an older lady on my team she's been there for years and years and years and at the end she said so so is it something you're born with (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why like it's it's a legitimate and fair question to be to be fair to her but it just tickled me like just that kind of are you born with it will it ever change and I I think it's like you say it the, the symptoms and the different experiences mm-hmm. and the severity of it is going to be different for everyone. And I think what's really important, like I, I always say, I think anyone can recover. Yeah. I don't think yeah. everyone gets the opportunity to because it's all about getting that care and that support. And if if you if you don't have that, yeah, of course you're not going to find work. Like, of course you're not. How how if you don't have you know the mental resources and like as as people say the, the mental spoons to get up and, and go and look for it of course you're not going to be able to do that I mean you know obviously we've talked about um kind of the symptoms yeah but also the treatment of it the medication is oh, I don't know about you I I mm-hmm. found it horrendous from the word go I lacked energy, I felt like a zombie constantly. And this yep. isn't to put anyone off taking medication because it's important. And it was really important to me in my early recovery. And I know that because it it kind of numbed everything off and allowed me to find those little bits of strength, yeah. you know, through therapy and, and whatnot. It allowed me to find those bits so that I could start yeah. rewiring my head, basically. Um, but we don't talk enough about and I think I think you know I, I won't ever be kind of one of those um I suppose an anti-psych Twitter <laughs> activist who says you know psychiatry is poison I don't believe that but I do think there needs to be more of an understanding as to how those medications affect people because it can be it, it's it, it's life-changing I was a different person yeah like and you know I'm I'm no longer taking medication. I've, I've, I've weaned myself off gradually mm-hmm. over the years because I felt it was important for my health. If, you know, if I have had another, another episode, would I go and get meds? Of course I would, because I know that that, you know, gets me level quickly. But there needs to be a conversation around that. Yeah, I've experienced very similar to yourself, running with medication. It really isn't spoken about. And when you're going through that first episode, especially if you do uh, end up, presenting to like a or the police are under crisis team and taken for that like they will just hit you with loads of pro- what's it called prophylactic antipsychotics for obvious reasons for me the very first episode i had wasn't um treated because no one really recognized it and i was also mostly alone at the time then then when i did end up within like nhs uh, it did started to get treated with uh, antipsychotics, catypine, everyone knows. <laughs> um, yeah, medicate, the yeah. medication is always such an interesting one because it's such a hot button topic for everyone. Um, but coming from a psychology, social science background, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. I'm not anti-psychiatry, I'm not anti-meds, but I also have came to understand my condition more from a trauma perspective than a purely medical model one. And I think that's like a journey yeah. a lot. Like trying to understand what is quite a unique 
condition. Like all mental mental health conditions are unique, but there's just there's just something about psychosis. I don't know if it's the intensity of it or just what it entails, whatever. But um, yeah, so I think linking back to my earlier comments around you disclose psychosis and people instantly think you don't have capacity. That goes for healthcare as well. And again, I'm not telling anyone to stop medication, to come off it, to disengage. Don't do that. If you want to do that, do it with permission. Don't do that. I did that once. It was a bad idea. <laughs> no, it's bad. No. Sorry. You end up just boomeranging back. It's a bad idea. Like, don't do it. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, but, um, it's not worth it. Much like yourself, Bronwyn, I came off. Uh, all medication completely at the start of this year. One, I was trying to finish my PhD and the sort of benefits from catiapine. One, I was getting really scared about the physical health aspects like cardiovascular health and stuff like that. Um, diabetes, metallus, please correct me, me uh, medical professions, if I've pronounced that wrong. I was, I was just scared about the physical health aspects because it'd been about four or five years and I was on quite a high dose along with other medications. Um, the main benefits from typing is it makes you tired. You can't be you, you can't be psychosis person if you're unconscious. Um, it's very hard to be that. <laughs> yeah. That's Which true. is the main benefit. That's very true. Um, yeah. The brain fog, the dry mouth. I got the really weird side effect of I stopped sweating for a while on it, which is dangerous. Yeah, I was like, what's up with me? Like it's really? more than ten degrees in Glasgow today. I should be sweating buckets. <laughs> and I just didn't. <laughs> Interestingly, I've got the opposite. I swear. Oh yeah. My God, I wish I could get that side effect. Wow. I've st- I, I don't sleep very well, and the tablets. What they do is they make me really tired, but don't help me sleep. So I used to I used to work in construction. I used to be up at like four or five in the morning to go to work. Now I'm lucky if my brain works before eleven. There's no way I can work in construction anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. The tiredness, but not being able to sleep. Yeah. Um, the, that's what I wanted to say. The one point that always got to me it still pisses me off to this day is especially if you're newly in services with psychosis and I get it this is how psychiatrists are taught it's how they prescribe the medication everything but when I presented psychiatrists said take the catiapine and some other things the antipsychotics will make the voices go away so obviously at the very beginning you're so dis- I'm not speaking for everyone but I was personally really distressed so I wanted the voices to go away to this day nothing I've tried has made the voices go away um, I get when the randomised control trials say that it reduces voices. Yes, because you're unconscious for 14 hours. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you can't hear them. Yes. Do you know what? I found it was like, it, it, it was like being, well, obviously, you know, it, it changes your brain chemistry. I, I found it was like being high, but without the fun part of that. Yeah. Because I was so, I was constantly discombobulated. I felt I'd I'd knock stuff over constantly. I didn't, you know, I couldn't mm-hmm. kind of work out where my hands were. Walking, you know, everything mm-hmm. just felt very numb and quite almost quite loose. And I think that that numbing, yeah, I think I'm right in saying it affects like dopamine, doesn't it? Quetiapine. So that the the problem is that yeah. kind of baseline numbs everything off and I know this is really off at a tangent compared to um <laughs> employment so sorry Hazel <laughs> but that that numbing effect that kind of numbs everything off so it numbs the intensity numbs the distress but I found the same as you Michelle 
the voices didn't stop like even now I can have good days and bad days yeah but I have to learn how to manage them and I think that is part of the care I think in Mm -hmm. this country that is missing I think you know again you, you talked about it from a sort of trauma perspective I ended up getting a personal I say personal private um psychologist private psychotherapist because that was the only way I thought I was going to get any help and it's so sad that in this day and age people have to do that I am and I feel so fortunate that at that point I wasn't working so one of the barriers for me to being able to find work was being well enough Mm. to get get through the day and and actually you know manage and cope with a job but the barrier to be getting to that place yeah. was the fact that I didn't have any money. <laughs> so for me, my in-laws, thankfully, you know, uh, I, I, I will never, ever stop singing their praises. They paid for private mm-hmm. psychotherapy for me whilst I was off work. And I'm so fortunate that I was in a position where they could do that. So few people mm-hmm. in this country, particularly at the minute, are in that position. And it's so sad that that they can't access that kind of help because that that therapy has been yeah. it's been life changing for me it's been absolutely incredible and it's the one thing the one treatment that has worked <laughs> you know for any length of time i can you know I'm, like like we said don't just stop your medication it is risky it is not worth it but medication alone might not lead to long-term change. The point I get really passionate about as well, um, medication itself. Maybe it works for some people. I have never personally met someone where medication, purely by itself, uh, led to massive changes. A lot of people I know end up uh, going through private therapy um, because trauma therapy just still isn't really a thing in NHS Scotland, especially for psychosis. Um, and to link this back to employment, I was technically employed during this time. I was a PhD student um, trying to do a 9 to 5 while also still dealing with the massive highs and lows of psychosis. At one point, I got sent to group CBT for psychosis. It's called CBTP. And all that really happened is we absolutely drew each other into our own unusual belief systems. We all had the same unusual belief system by the end of the session. And no one, <laughs> it wasn't helping anyone. Um, was I the ringleader of that? Uh, no. Um, I mean, I wasn't invited back for the next session, to be fair. But <laughs> Interestingly, that happened to me when I did a group focus on eating disorder. By the end of the six weeks, I think we were all more ill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm... It definitely performed in the the randomised control trials they've done, but like I always say for CBT, it's been absolutely, can you swear on this podcast? It's just been bastardised by the NHS because of funding and time limits and did not get enough professionals to train, train more psychologists and therapists, please, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yes, for the love of God. Yeah. Uh, but no, my, my journey was, again, similar to yours. Um, I ended up accessing private therapy through one of the only groups outside NHS Scotland, in Scotland, that's dedicated to psychosis and self-harm. They're called Time and Space Glasgow. Um, hello, if you listen to this. Um, I I would not be here without them. Um, one, I started really uh, trying to look at other ways of understanding psychosis purely out with the medical model. Um, and two, they've provided free, open-ended 
talking therapy, which I still access to, to this day. Wow. With someone who is trauma-informed and understands psychosis and, importantly, understands the, understands the difference between suicidal ideation and being active, um, which the NHS absolutely pee their pants at, especially when it's psychosis you're dealing with. Oh, I know I shouldn't laugh, but that's a big problem I've had. Like, they just... The adults seem to understand there's a difference between just having the thoughts and doing the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I just I don't I I don't understand, but yeah, it's it's a massive issue. I mean, I do understand why because they get very little trade in on it, but it's it's ridiculous in this in this day and age. So yeah, I was trying to do all this while seemingly employed. Like, let's just say I took massively long lunch breaks, like or afternoons off. Like, sorry, uh, you know, I need to go and deal with personal stuff. I need to go and drag some other people into my weird, unusual belief system this afternoon, um, and then get shouted at by a psychologist. So I'll not be back until Thursday. I've had yeah. I've had a few managers, and at this place that I'm at currently, I've had three. My first one, so I went into the business as a temporary contractor. Um, doing admin work that's how they take people on they did take them on as temp and then there's a promise of if you're good enough if you're still here after six months we might have an opportunity to make you permanent so already there's a bit of a lack of security around that you can literally be fired the same day and that for me was always a really big um, factor like I can't explain how much weight was lifted off my shoulders once I actually went permanent because (laughs) it was like well at least now if they're gonna fire me they kind of have to you know they kind of have to gather evidence and wait for a while especially the whole on some days it's worse than mm-hmm. other days and it i think within employment that can be hard to explain yeah so like on one day you appear perfectly functional and the next yeah. day you can't leave the house and to people who don't experience these things that's just they can't stand it and then you get fired because <laughs> they think you're making excuses <laughs> Um, so my first, my first two, um, I say two managers, one of them was a senior advisor, which is the the position that I have now. So it's like deputy manager on a team. So the manager and the senior advisor, they were good. (laughs) I I won't, I won't, um, sort of speak badly about them because they did help me a lot, but I didn't realize how much was missing from that until I had my second manager. Um, So when I first joined, there was quite a high amount of pressure put on a lot of. um, So uh, with regards to absence policies and that sort of thing, if you hit um, if you had more than three absences in 12 months, generally you'd be out the door. So that policy was a real fear factor for me because I'd say to um my manager like I don't know if I'm gonna be sick you know I I don't and like like you said Michelle I I'd in previous jobs I tried to hide it until it was until I felt that it was it wasn't possible to hide it anymore and then I'd come out and talk to um talk to the manager and usually by that point if you've been sliding for a while, your performance has dipped, maybe your absences are quite bad, they're not necessarily, and to be fair to them, I I probably wouldn't, wouldn't really be wanting to listen to me either <laughs> at that point, because you, by mm. that point, you've become a bit of a headache for them, probably, and that's, you know, it sounds awful to say that, but 
I thought when I went for this, um, this administration position, I'm going to tell them from the off. I'm going to tell them from the off exactly and, and hope that they still hire me <laughs> and, you know, just make it clear that I'm, you know, willing to do whatever it takes, but I will need some support to get there. So I did that. Um, and it was funny when I spoke to the temporary agency, my the advice that they gave me was well no you probably don't want to do that because you want them to hire you and it might not be relevant now to me like okay it's it's not who i am but it is relevant if it means that i'm going to need more support than another candidate then yes it's relevant if it means that i'm likely to take more sick days than another candidate it's relevant so I went against their advice. And firstly, I would say to if, if there are any um, agency um, kind of recruitment people listening, please don't tell people that have a mental illness not to disclose that mental illness is like, in my mind, it's really bad advice because ultimately employers have a duty of care to their people. And in order to fulfill their duty of care, they need to know these things, as you know, for, for no other reason, they need to know these things. And so I spoke to my senior advisor at the time and said, look, this is me. This is who I am. Plus the fact that I have, obviously I've just come from, I have therapy once a week. Um, I'm going to need to talk about my working hours and their initial reaction was oh that might be a bit difficult because you're a temp now that like to be fair once once i'd spoken to the manager and explained exactly why i need it wasn't me shirking it wasn't me saying no i don't want to work these hours it was i have an appointment every week it's a mental health appointment it's really important it keeps me well keeps me able to work stops me getting sick and when I made that really clear after that, they were they kind of changed their tune a little bit and like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Just, you know, let us know what you want to do in terms of making up the hours um, and we'll agree it. So whilst I don't know, I, I feel like whilst they did what they should eventually and they helped, there was kind of almost a reluctance at that point. Now, <clears throat> bearing in mind, this was back in 2017. We have moved on since then I think particularly with COVID working from home flexible working is all the rage now so I think a lot of companies have improved mm -hmm. their policies around it and thank god they have but there probably are a lot of companies out there that still haven't that you know won't agree appointment times for people to be able to access the support that they need to stay well and stay in work now contrast this with my second manager so after a couple of years, um, our manager moved on um, and I got a, got a new manager. And at first I was terrified. I'd never been through a management changeover. Um, I'd never experienced a handover. I was worried, you know, will they like me? Will they think I'm any good? Am I going to get on with them? What do I tell them about my psychosis? Mm -hmm. That was a, <laughs> such a big thing. And... Um, I spoke to, so by this point, I had a really good working relationship with my current manager and I spoke to them about it and they were like, look, I will broach it with them first and then you can talk to them about it. So new manager comes in and a week later, um, I said to them, 
so I just wanted to have a bit of a chat with you just to, uh, you know, I don't know if um, the previous manager has spoken to you about this stuff, but I just need to have a chat with you and put you in the loop about my situation. And they went, oh, no, I haven't been told about this. So my second bit of advice for managers, if you have someone with a mental health condition, make mm -hmm. sure you hand that information over to the new manager, please. <laughs> It, that's that's really important. So I, I spoke with her, and the entire time I was terrified. I it, it was a bad day for me in terms of voices. Anyway, I think because I knew that I was going to be speaking with her, so I was worried about conflict. My anxiety rose, and when my anxiety rises, my symptoms go up. So I was pretty flighty, very distractible, quite quite a noisy day for me. And then she said, so I, I kind of blurted out my entire history at her. Um, bless her. She was probably thinking, what on earth have I let myself in for? Um, but I, I kind of, so I, I told her everything because I didn't know where to start. And she kind of listened. She was like, oh, okay, that's, she kind of went, that's quite a lot to take in. And I thought, oh God, uh, have I completely ruined this relationship with her before? It's, have I said too much? Have I completely put her off me? You know, what is she thinking now? And she said, I think the main thing for me to understand is what can I do to help? And I, 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 I'm a crier. I cry when I'm too happy. I cry when I'm very sad. I, well, I cry when I'm a little bit sad, to be fair. I started crying. She's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry if I said something. I was like, no, I was, that's so nice and refreshing to hear that. Like up until that point, no one had said to me, what can I do to help you? And I, I think my last takeaway for any um, any managers out there, that phrase mm -hmm. will instantly help. <laughs> like just just knowing that she was willing to take the time to understand what what psychosis means for me what symptoms i have to deal with how that affects my work how how that doesn't affect my work like what things i can still do what things i can still take on where does my capability lie she was willing to understand all of that and to try and wrap her head around it and that made I'm, I'm gonna start crying I'm really trying not to it made such mm -hmm. a difference to how I felt about my job because it felt safe and that's really difficult to find I think particularly for people like us who have you know I, I suppose for you know other mental health conditions as well it doesn't feel mm -hmm. like a place where you can bring your whole self to work and if you're afraid to disclose that sort of thing uh, or you're, you know, the situation that you're in kind of makes you worry about particular aspects of it, you're not going to perform to your best because half of the time you're going to be worrying about things. And of course, you're going to perform badly if you're worrying about things half the time. So I think that would be my thing. And one thing that I would say about disclosure is my company's recently introduced a, an adjustment passport so it's like it, it doesn't necessarily say what adjustments do you need because you're right Michelle that's such a difficult question to answer I find that so hard yep. to say what because I don't know what's going to help me sometimes but it asks things like 
what are you like when you're well? It's a bit like the um, mm -hmm. the mind's well-being well-being action plan. What what are you like when you're well? What are you like when you're ill? How can we help you stay well? What are the factors that help you stay well? How can we support that? Um, and that has been I know from you know I've used it. I know a couple of other people on various teams in in my um, area that have used it, and they found that massively helpful. Mm -hmm because it gets them thinking it gets people thinking about it even if you know it, it might be that actually they've never experienced any mental ill health before or physical ill health but it gets people thinking about the things that they struggle with and the challenges that they have and having challenges doesn't make you a bad person yeah it, it makes you a person <laughs> um so yeah I think that's that's something that managers yeah. really need to take the time to understand i think we'll, we can sort of sum that down as managers need to take the time to understand and learn and ask questions and not just assume stuff that basically is a nice little summary yeah yeah pricey of it um and they need to hand over the information that they have and yes that bit too not look at you like you've got two heads <laughs> uh, that that's it's pretty good advice generally all round, really yeah disclosure for 90% of it, it's much the same as Bronwyn's experience. Uh, there's not much, too much difference between like uh, disclosure to a university, a, a, super, a academic supervisor to a manager. Um, there's maybe some key differences to the fact that academia is really strange. And I say that <laughs> as a strange person in academia. <laughs> there is a lot of strange people in academia. <laughs> and also just the rules around like working in academia and so yeah my disclosure was was much the same for a long time I didn't disclose I think it when I interviewed I said I had mental health difficulties <laughs> I wasn't like hey I'm just out of the hospital I can answer your original email because I didn't have my phone <laughs> <laughs> but I turned up anyway <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't yeah. allowed electronic had devices. Had to get charged at the nursing station, and then they watched. <laughs> Although I had seen a bit of a, an aside, I have seen on Twitter. Like I don't understand America, but it's here. But uh, some of the rooms have plugs, and they have like the tiny charging cords. Yes, the yeah. tiny cords. Yeah. <laughs> you love the tiny mm -hmm. cords. <laughs> you know, times have moved on since I was there. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, and I. In case anyone's thinking, why are they laughing about this? I don't know. I've got a very dry black sense of humour, so... I think you have to. I think it's... Once you reach a certain point, like... like I've said it before. I think I said it on the um, the psychosis chat. I live... Northampton's an awfully funny place. We get an awfully an awful lot of funny people. <laughs> and if I see someone doing something bizarre in the street, I have to turn to my... Still, even now, have to turn to my husband and go that's not just me right and it's like you have to find something to laugh about yeah. or I do yeah. at least because otherwise otherwise it ends up consuming you like it, it's not just you Michelle. no no you just have to like, plus some of the stuff you go through is just funny like if you told like I don't know 16 year old me that I'd be banned from group therapy because I drew everybody into like a government spy conspiracy theory <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't believe it. it's just just stuff you thought you'd you'd never have to go through 
or say to other people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's the absurd and the yeah. bizarre as well, isn't yeah. it? It's like psychosis in particular. Some of the stuff that happens can be just what just mixed up it's like, like it's like living in a david lynch film and it's just mixed up with like your day-to-day life so you might be going through that and then uh time to take the dog a walk like time to i don't know phone my mom just normal stuff yeah. <laughs> it's just weird but um yes disclosure so i didn't disclose to my supervisors completely until the start of this year really which i started the phd in 2017 which is quite a long time I did disclose to the university so they had a um at Glasgow University it's called the, the disability service <clears throat> so I disclosed to them um, so it was on the system um and I think I think they just put psychosis but again because PhD is like self-driven study I didn't have to go to classes or anything I did end up teaching during it which was weird <laughs> but, yeah, wow. It was, it was, I mean, I enjoyed teaching, but uh, yeah, it was it was weird. As an ex pharmacology teacher, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting doing that in front of it, yeah, you know, be stood in front of people while having these thoughts. Yeah, head, isn't it? yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, but that kudos, kudos for that. <laughs> My God, that's like a nightmare yeah, during COVID as well. It was, <laughs> it was. Yeah, ridiculous. So yeah, disclo- disclosure came in 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 jobs and drabs, and like my supervisors and the university certainly became aware, and then I disclosed uh, even more until I finally told them, and they were like, "Yeah, that makes sense." <laughs> And a much nicer. You always knew it was something strange. Really, of course. <laughs> I mean, and this this comes back into our conversation about when you're asked what the like, what can we do to help you? They they did ask at, at several points, and kudos to them. Like it's 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 hard supervising people. It's extra hard when that person has psychosis and isn't telling you shit. Like, but is is seemingly terrified of you. Like that's hard. Um. And when they when I did disclose at several different points, and they said, "What can we do to support you?" I I didn't know, so I was like, "Oh, nothing." But yeah, it's it's just so it's just so hard to to uh, to navigate. But you know what? We've we've got there in the end. <laughs> it's certainly been a, a better yeah. journey than than um, than than some people have had, and for a lot of it, it's it's on me um i know i do feel a lot of guilt about not disclosing earlier um but there's so much to navigate around like feelings of safety and the big thing for me was i felt if i disclosed that they would think i wasn't capable of working anymore so they would chuck me out and one i needed the money and two a lot of self-worth was tied up into academic output of course so um, if I get chucked out, then that was the the end of the world. And because at the beginning I placed so much emphasis on if I can get this, if I can get a PhD, then I will magically, magically be cured. For anyone listening to this, um, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but if you're not suffering from mental illness before the PhD, you will probably leave with one. Um, this this isn't me just pulling it off the top of my head. It's the statistic is something like one in four. Yeah, really? I mean, I'm like I don't know five months away from submission. I'm not the best person to ask about doing a PhD just now. Um, 
yeah maybe don't ask me that on twitter but (laughs) (laughs) for advice but uh, yeah the 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 stress involved a lot of people do unfortunately leave with mental um mental health difficulties um did it make the psychosis worse i can honestly say no it just got uh, that was one of the questions i was asked at one point has this made your psychosis worse no, that was bad to begin with. <laughs> like, but yeah. honestly, like, and for some people it might have, but honestly for me it really didn't. In a lot of ways it was escapism. Um, in a lot of ways, like, like I, I do still get very emotional about it. Like, And the very low lows that I've had, it's always been there. So it's always been an achievement. It's always been there for me, um, whether I've struggled with it or not and obviously it's several times I have um so to disclose felt like a massive risk I didn't think they would be too judgmental or the university would be too judgmental just because it's a massive university and I'm not going to be the first or last to go through with a condition like that um I was more just concerned with if I tell them this diagnosis they're going to think I can't work basically like that I'm not capable of uh, holding down employment so but even before the psychosis, I was always one that um, whenever I left university or a job and I was in between things, I would have a massive crash because everything was so tied up in producing like something, producing something, doing something. Um, and that's something that I suppose living with psychosis has taught me to slow down with. Like, I can only do so much before I burn out and it's about recognising that, especially... And employment and the type of employment that I'm, that I'm in, yeah, yeah. But yeah, dis- disclosure did happen. Um, if you feel safe enough to do it, I do recommend people do it. I'd, certainly, certainly for me, it went it went better than it did go in my imagination. I thought it would go terribly, and obviously yeah. it went it, <laughs> it went much better. Um, and it has led to to improvements uh, in work life balance and relationships and producing and everything else so it it did have its benefits i know not everyone is in a position to disclose and not everyone feels safe to do so and for some people i would hope this doesn't happen now but i know some people could lose employment over it yeah it's it's a tricky one to navigate and i don't think i think it's yeah unique to everybody yeah i think i agree and i think you know i'd, I'd second that i mean ultimately if any negative consequences occur because you mm. disclose that surely if it's if it, I think from my understanding anyway if it's a long-term condition it's probably covered as a disability mm-hmm. under the Equality Act and I think for many people there are probably more benefits than costs in disclosing mm-hmm to someone at your organization it doesn't necessarily you know even if it's not your manager but someone in HR or like you did Michelle someone in like a specific disability Mm -hmm. service within an organization I think it's I think as well it it kind of gives you options as to what's out there like and I think that you know not I think the biggest thing for me when I was asked what can we do to help wasn't oh I can give them specific requests now because like like I said it's not that simple like I've been 
I never know what to put on an interview form, for instance, whether I say I've got a disability or not, because then they ask, what adjustments would you require? I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel like I can say, well, I definitely need it virtual, please. Or I want to see the questions beforehand. I don't feel comfortable saying mm -hmm. that. I feel like that's too much. But in terms of knowing that there are potential options out there, even that knowledge gives you a bit of breathing space and just it almost kind of allows you to get out of your own way yeah. a little bit and I think one thing in, with psychosis in particular that I've found is how much it's affected my self-esteem and the way I feel about myself like for a very long time I felt I think you know I think we have to be careful in the stories that we we put out because you know not everyone with psychosis is going to find work yeah not everyone with psychosis is going to psych going to recover but equally not everyone with psychosis won't mm -hmm. and i think you know focusing so much on statistics sometimes i find you know that would have made me hopeless when yeah. i was just trying to recover and it would have made me feel extremely low and oh my god all the odds are stacked against me i'm never going to get a job never gonna and actually you know even if it's not a job I think finding some like you said Michelle about having something that's always there and something to cling on to having that knowledge because a lot of the work that I've done in the therapy that I've had is around who I am mm -hmm. what my um I, I won't I, I don't mean identity in kind of the I suppose the the modern sense of the term but at my core what do I do well mm -hmm. what do I struggle with how does that affect me in my daily life what's my personality like those are all questions that I find really difficult to answer because of the upbringing that mm -hmm. I've had and the psychosis makes that a lot worse yeah. because particularly for me my my <laughs> uh, unusual belief system was centered around the fact that I wasn't human like that and even now I say that and I get this horrible little cringe in my stomach because it always feels weird telling people no, I always that. cringe about me as well I think everyone it's a universal cringe yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes that stems from a lot of shame and that's something that I've learned through years of therapy is that's almost like my brain's way of dealing with a lot of stuff mm -hmm. that happened and when you feel like that it's very difficult to because ultimately I think most people want to be a good person they want to you know if you have values you want to be someone who lives up to your own values and your own expectations and having some sort of you know whether it's a job whether it's volunteering you know obviously Hazel I know you said you've been out of work for two years but you've done so much recently in terms of the reality tourist blog the podcast um psychosis chats I would hope I, I really hope you'd find that really meaningful because it's done an awful lot for an awful lot of people and I think finding something that has meaning that you can do and do well is really important to recovering because it gives you something that no matter how bad you get, no matter how bad you get, you can always go, this is who I am. 
mm-hmm. at my core this is the person that I am and no voice no unusual belief system no amount of you know anxiety fear paranoia nothing can actually take that away from me and that is really important to know I think and I think it would help a lot of people to be able to find that for themselves because it's something that everyone it's going to be unique to each person Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's probably quite metaphysical and a bit existential (laughs) there (laughs) but I I think I think you're completely right um, even if it's voluntary work or so I think mm-hmm. people need something yeah and, and, and I say I'm out of work for two years I have but I've yeah. done a lot of voluntary work for some weird reason I can manage that I just can't manage pay work <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I maybe it's there's there's I think as well that kind of if you're doing volunteer work generally you're doing it because it's something that's good and it's something that you enjoy <sighs> paid work isn't always like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Good> <laughs> You know, that I think there are more stress factors than potentially there would be with voluntary work because ultimately, if it's voluntary work, you can kind of opt out. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you, you can just leave. Yeah, that might be part of it. <laughs> Don't feel trapped to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a slave to the man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, so this episode was so long that um, I've met, I cut it into a two parter. This is part one. I hope you enjoyed it. Part two, we're going to be talking about the finer points of disclosure. And I'm going to be asking um, how it is that these two people are able to work with psychosis when so many people aren't able to. So they give you a little bit of a view into what has helped them, what they believe has been most important for them in being able to gain and maintain employment. And there's an awful lot of useful stuff in there. I really hope that um, you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for episode two. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reality Tourist Podcast. To find out more about the project, or maybe to get involved by writing a blog or being a guest on the show, please look us up on Twitter, at Reality Tourists. Until next time, bye for now.